The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony Utah Opera Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. Today, we are talking about the next offering in the Utah opera season, La Fille du Regiment, The Daughter of the Regiment, which is going to be on the stage of the Janet Quinney Lawson Capitol Theater. And we are thrilled to present this. Oddly enough, it's a Utah opera premiere. Can you believe it? Carol, so we're recording right now. It's it's late December of 2022. This is happening in January of 23. And the Utah opera in its 40 some odd years has never performed this opera. Are you serious? It's crazy. You know, when we sit down to plan a season, we have many things we want to consider. We want to consider what the marketing department wants to sell. We want to consider what composers have been represented or not represented. We want to consider new works that we want to perform. And then we also look, we have kind of a rough idea that, say, every five to nine years or so, that's kind of our repetition for the major works that people want to see very often, like Bohem, like Carmen, like Nancy de Figaro. So all these things are going into the conversation. There's a document that's been created over the years of Utah opera performance history. And I'm not going to say I single-handedly got this opera presented because there's a lot of people involved in the conversations. But you did. But I did note that of all the things that had been done, we'd never done Daughter of the Regiment. Yeah. We've done other Donizetti, mostly, well, we could talk about this, you know, Gaetano Donizetti wrote serious and comic operas. And there's about three that get done pretty with any regularity, and that's Don Pasquale, a right. comedy, Elixir of Love, a comedy. Lucia de Lammermoor, definitely not a comedy. Definitely not. And actually, Fio du Regiment, it's done quite often. So yeah. the fact that we had never done it was really kind of shocking to me. And so, you know, when you start those conversations, you're just saying, hey, you know, I just happened to look in the history and we've never done this piece. And so we're thrilled to finally put it together and put it on our stage for our audiences. So tell me and tell everyone else, you know, because of that, obviously long incubation period for Utah <laughs> Opera to, to find its way to daughter. Are you doing a really traditional production or are you doing something modern? What's the what's the look and feel? Oh, it's definitely traditional. It's um, Regency. So maybe it's a few decades prior to the actual composition of the opera. The 1840. Opera, yeah. 1840. Yeah. And so we're, the, we're doing a, a Regency look with the high-waisted mm-hmm. um, Ampere-style gowns and such. Uh, definitely set in, well, I mean, and that's when the opera is set. It's set in the Napoleonic Wars. So it's set in that um, early part of the 19th century, right. few, which was only a few decades before the composition. Right. So uh, we have brand new costumes that are being built by our wonderful costume shop. And uh, it's been fun to, I like to go in my, free time, which is very um, scarce. But when I have it, I like to make a visit to the costume shop because I just enjoy seeing all the pretty fabrics lined out. And there's a party scene in the second act that's just going to be a wealth of beauty for especially all the the gowns for the female presenting chorus members. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, they love to get brand new costumes that are specifically built for their measurements right. for their look to fl- uh, the costume shop loves to flatter everyone who comes through you know they want to make sure they feel and look their best 
as well as supporting the drama. And so it's a, a real luxury, especially for our chorus, to get these um, bespoke costumes. That is one of the coolest parts of the production studios of Utah Opera. I've spent a lot of time down there myself. And you can endlessly wander and just see productions of yore and imagine the way they pull and put these things together for things that haven't even been planned yet. It's it's an incredible place. It's yeah, like it a really little is. it's like a little Willy Wonka chocolate factory <laughs> down there. It's Santa's workshop. It, absolutely. We just come off of Christmas. Absolutely. Incidentally, if you're in Salt Lake City and you want to see some more of the work of our wonderful costume shop, there's a display on the top floor of the Salt Lake City Public Library that is featuring uh, costumes from some of the literary operas. So it's tying in with the library theme. So we've got our costumes from Little Women, Little Prince, Moby Dick, and Cinderella that you can see and enjoy in that space. And it's an awesome space anyway, so you should go. Next up at the opera, Utah Opera presents Donizetti's The Daughter of the Regiment. One overprotective father would be enough. Imagine having an army of them. Sparks fly when Marie, an orphan raised by French soldiers, meets Tonio from across enemy lines. Who will win on the battlefield of love in this spunky rom-com? Watch it happen live at Utah Opera, January 4th through 22nd at Janet Quinney Lawson Capitol Theater. So anyway, we're just excited. We're using a rented set, so the uh, not building it at the Utah Opera Production Studios, but using a set from another company. And we've assembled an amazing cast, I think. We have a couple of returning artists, Matt Burns, who we last saw as Bartolo in The Chicken Barber Seville from 2021. Uh, He will be our Sergeant Sulpice, the leader of the regiment, Elise Qualiatu, who I think was last here, last season, as the Minsk woman in flight, will be coming back as the Marquise de Birkenfield. A wonderful tenor who is just eating up the opera world with his renditions of these high-flying tenor roles. We'll be doing Tonio. Tonio has the aria that everyone knows of with the notorious eight high Cs. Yeah, we'll come back to that. With an additional ninth. Definitely. And then Madison Leonard, who came to us for the first time with Pirates of Penzance last season, is coming back to do the role of the daughter. And it's a vehicle that has been a star vehicle for many a soprano over the centuries. For a very long time. So since we have not prepared our audience as well for this piece by never having performed it here in Utah, can you go through the story just real quickly? What's what's the basic story of Daughter of the Regiment? Well, it's that trope. I looked up orphan tropes, and it's right. a trope of an orphan raised by a community. So Marie has been adopted by a regiment of soldiers. Right. And she's what is called a vivandiera, which is someone who actually does the cooking and cleaning for for the regiment. But they all consider themselves to be her fathers. She's kind of a mascot, really. She's, she is yeah. a little bit the mascot yeah. of the regiment. So they are um, in the Tyrol at the beginning of the opera, and there's a Tyrolean village that is going to be attacked. So they're very terrified. Um, everyone's worried. And um, the, 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 the attack is uh, averted, but... The Marquise de Berkenfield and her major domo Hortensius have been uh, delayed by this little battle. And so they're on the scene with the soldiers of the regiment, the French soldiers, and uh, Marie and Sergeant Sulpice. We discover then the regiment brings in an interloper, a Tyrolean who's 
clearly a spy for the other side. Well, it turns out he's actually someone who saved Marie when she was out in the mountains and she encountered a dangerous situation and he had saved her and they, of course, have fallen in love. It's interesting because it's one of the shows where you don't get to see them fall in love. They're already in love yeah. by the time they show up. That's pretty rare. So um, Usually that moment is condensed into one aria, but exactly. this time it happens off stage. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, uh, so Marie defends Tonio and um, Tonio decides – that he's going to have to join the regiment because the regimental soldiers have vowed that no one not in the regiment is worthy of marrying Marie. So he's like, well, I've got it. I can't beat them. So I will have to join them. And that's when he sings his famous high C aria. Mm -hmm. Uh, Meanwhile, we discover along the way that um, the Marquise is a family member, a long lost family member, wink, wink of Marie. And so they agree that Marie will go back to the Marquise's home to learn to be a lady. And get fancied up. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone's very sad about this, but it's the only option for her. So we get back into the second act, and she's taking lady lessons uh, and not doing very well at all. There's a very funny trio where she's um, having a singing lesson, and they parody all sorts of um, operatic tropes of the early 19th century just to make fun of the fact that she's having to take lessons. And there's a lot of comedic Uh, options in there. There's a lot of uh, um, improv that usually happens in this scene. Uh, We also discovered that the Marquise de Birkenfield has arranged a marriage for Marie with an appropriate young man. And that's part of the reason why she needs to make sure she gets very ladyfied. I just made that word up. No, it's good. It works. I hope you like it. So she's, she actually, the Marquise decides to have a party to introduce Marie to society. And so she's under the gun to get Marie super fancied up for this party so that she doesn't embarrass the Marquise and so that this marriage contract can go forward. The regiment all shows up to save Marie ostensibly. And of course, then the guests are all horrified to discover that she's actually nothing more than a vivandier, Mm -hmm. someone who worked for the regiment. But... um, her charm wins everyone over. She and Antonio are reunited. And, of course, we end with a happy ending with a, a refrain of an earlier aria. We get to, everyone gets to join in. And I forgot to say there's one little spoiler alert thing that is kind of fun. We discovered that I said wink, wink when I said she was a member of the Marquise family. Well, it turns out the Marquise had an illegitimate child yes. a number of years ago. They present had, they present her as the auntie at some point, right? Yes, but the auntie, but exactly. It's, but it's more than that. It's more than an auntie. And so Marie is actually the long-lost daughter uh-huh. of of um, the Marquise. So that's a little bit scandal. Yeah. Well, it's, it's it sounds like an opera carol with a little bit of a Liza Doolittle thrown in. Exactly. Certainly. It's very Pyg- Pygmalion-esque. Yeah. Or like any of those stories where orphans brought off the streets and, yeah. and made fancy. Rags to riches. Exactly. Name a trope. It's there. Yeah. So this comes from the bel canto tradition, which um, you and I talked about off mic a little bit. And I've done a little research into this because defining it, I think, is important to talk about Donizetti or any of these early 19th century Italian composers. So can I take a stab at this? Sure. Defining bel canto. So it's apparently a very nostalgic mid-19th century term for describing a very short slice of early 19th century Italian opera tradition. Yeah, those bel canto composers didn't wake they up did. and say, I'm going to write beautiful singing exactly. songs. A- apparently, the, the the phrase came from a, a conversation that Rossini was having at a party in 1858. Looking back on the early days, he'd been retired from opera for a while at this point, and he says, we've lost our bel canto. So back reading into history, that term was used to describe the operas of him, Bellini, Donizetti, and in my opinion, early Verdi, too. Um, 
like you said, beautiful singing, beautiful song. That's what it translates to loosely. And I think that I wrote down some bullet points on how I think this manifests itself in the actual operas themselves. Let's see what you think. So the idea is that the focus is on the music and the voice. Melody first, everything else second. The opera itself sort of rolls out in a succession of set pieces, arias and pieces like that, sort of like number opera. And the orchestra is very accompanimental. And there's this phrase that maybe Wagner said, maybe just his devotees said, but he described Verdi's orchestra, especially in the early days, as nothing but a big guitar, which I find <laughs> just interesting and so cheeky. But the vocal technique is, is focuses on smooth, effortless technique with lots of embellishment, really a, a, very, a very even transition between ranges, very emotionally connected. The text is highly poetic, expertly aligned melodically through accents and other emphatic rhythmic devices and things like that. And the stories are really simple, clear archetypes, primary color, emotional content. Most of these things have a, these operas have a mad scene because it's such a great way to get that kind of singing and that kind of writing into the story. You can even make a case that our comedy that we're talking about has a little bit of a mad scene. Yeah. Well, you, I'll let you make that yep. case in a minute. But the And I also think that Belcanto was the true rise and, and solidification of the diva culture in opera. You talked about this being a star vehicle for sopranos and certainly star vehicle in a different way for tenors. But I think the diva... The, the concept of the diva really started to, like I said, solidify in the bel canto phase. What do you think? How'd I, how'd I do? I think you did pretty well. I want to dig into it just a little yeah. bit deeper yeah. and take these three composers who are represented and talk about what's different about them, though. Mm-hmm. They're, we, we lump them into one period, but they're very, very different. Yeah. Uh, when I see Rossini, and he's the earliest of the three, I, I see his music. I think of of the fioritura, which is the fancy word for fast notes in the voice. And so he actually is in that kind of highly embellished writing coming out of the Baroque period. So he's thinking forward a little bit, but he's also linked to the past. Then you get uh, Bellini, Vincenzo Bellini, who was later, but also lived a very short life. So actually um, Bellini started composing later, but finished up about the same, same time as Rossini because Rossini retired and well, he died. Bellini died. So that's, yeah, Rossini had some thirty years or something yeah. of retirement. I mean, he really stopped. Yeah, he was just—he yeah. just hosted parties where exactly. he apparently made up it incredible these wonderful bon mots. <laughs> yes. So, uh, I, and when I think of Bellini, I think of melody in particular. Yeah. And then when I think of Donizetti, I actually think of you know, I think of orchestra mm-hmm. and I think of chorus and I think of those things being a little more linked to the drama. So he's the one that he and Bellini have a, a similar birth date and a similar start to their career time-wise. But Donizetti went a little, quite a bit longer until his um, mental breakdown that was associated with the disease that caused his death eventually. So uh, Bellini had only written nine operas by the time he was like 34, I think. And then you look at Donizetti, who'd written some odd 30-ish. I mean, he ended up writing 70. So I think of, with Donizetti, I think of the orchestra being important. I think of of, of this um, plethora, this, this I mean, he could write three operas in a year. It was amazing how quickly he could create yeah. for, um, and most of his career was spent creating for Naples. So I think I went a little bit aside, but um, that's kind of, I, th- I think it's important to note that where they, while they all share in this nomenclature of bel canto mm-hmm. and legato and mm-hmm. coratura and all those words, they're actually very discreet. Yeah. 
C-R-E-T-E. Yes, of course. Discreet. You're making a great point because it's easy for me to do my research and backread this word onto those composers and I can sell it. You know, I can make my bullet points and I can sell it, but it's much more nuanced than that, isn't it? Yes. I mean, we do this. We do this categorization when we look back at music history, often to the detriment of understanding these composers individually. Yeah, because they were really, their goals were quite different. I mean, Rossini, they were very, very different people. And so, of course, their their um, writing was different. You know, Rossini made money and he made his splash on the scene in Italy and then in Paris. And then he was like, you know what? I'm going to go out on top. Uh, Bellini, I always sort of felt like he was kind of a workhorse. He And they were talking about, uh, I, I looked in one of my old textbooks earlier, and when I said this nine operas, Opposed as opposed to thirty, Bellini just struggled over every note. And this this um, scholar that wrote the textbook was talking about how his manuscripts are full of emendations because he just he struggled of getting everything out. And then Donizetti, I just imagine him just like you know with his pen just yeah. just like knocking it out like really Mozart fast. a little bit. Yeah, yeah just yeah. you know it's like. Uh, I try to I, – I like to – on planes, I like to do the people crossword, which is not the easiest crossword. I mean, not the hardest crossword that ever existed. <laughs> and my goal is always that I have to just keep my pen moving. I'm not allowed to stop. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I imagine with Donizetti is he just kept his pen moving and just created this art and these very quick, very quick turnarounds. I'm glad you mentioned Rossini going to Paris because one of the interesting things about Daughter is that it's Donizetti, an Italian man writing in French. And – it's not un- not always perfectly well either, right? And it's because it's all- it wasn't his language, right? And it's also not unheard of. I mean, Mozart wrote in Italian. I mean, the composers did write in other languages. So, what? Tell the story of why this opera is in French. It has to do with the source material, of course. But and there's also a side story about um, what was happening in Italy at the time in the early in the 1830s, 1840s. Talk about why this opera is in French. Yeah, you know, um, in Italy. The theater was always connected to the church, and the church had to approve everything. That and therefore happened. politics. And then politics. Yeah. And so um, Donizetti wrote a number of his operas for the Teatro San Carlo in Naples. That was just one of his big longtime gigs, if you will. And he was trying to write this one opera that wasn't passing the Italian censors. And so between that and the fact that Rossini and Bellini had both made their mark in Parisian opera, he decided to go to Paris and see what he could do. And so um, Daughter of the Regiment has a lot of qualities that go along with uh, French opera comique. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's dialogue, and that's quite unusual because most Italian operas have recitative, or recitative, recitativo. So um, he's got dialogue, which is written in French. In our case, we'll be doing it in English, and there's a reason for that. It seems odd to sing in French and speak in English, but it makes sense when we, um, when, when I, I'll explain the rationale. So uh, he just went there. He, he took his great hit, Lucia di Lamamore also, and he wrote it, he re- reset it in French, and it was called Lucie de Lamamore. Yeah. So he was just taking a chance. There was a vacancy with the death of Bellini and the retirement of Rossini, and he saw a place to step in and, and make his mark. Is there also something about sort of French revolutionary spirit coded into this libretto that the Italians maybe wouldn't have liked? Oh, yeah, maybe so. You know, yeah. I didn't even really think about that. But um, it makes a lot of sense because it is steeped in a French Napoleonic regiment. Right. So you talked about the um, uh, the, the spoken parts of the opera at, for this production being done in English. And I don't think doing the spoken stuff in vernacular is that uncommon. But no, often you'll all. see you'll see Mozart 
where all the spoken stuff is still done in German, but I've seen it in English as well. So what what's that decision based on? Why did you decide to do vernacular for that? Well, and Utah opera audiences will know that we have also done that with um, The Merry Widow, mm-hmm. with Deflator Mouse. And what's, what's the common denominator between these three? They're all comedies. Right. While we will use supertitles for the musical numbers, it's much more difficult to manage that in dialogue because pacing changes from day to day. Sure. You know, uh, timing changes. And in comedy, it's particularly difficult because actors on stage will modify their pace to go with audience reactions. The other thing that's problematic about supertitles and comedic dialogue in particular is that sometimes the supertitle will reveal the joke before the joke has been I've produced. I've always hated that, Carol. Right. So people it's start... the two-line method. Yeah. It's the two-line method of supertitle projection. And I've seen this all over the world, folks. This is not a Utah thing. Often the joke will land before the words actually come out of the mouth of the singer. And then it's just not it's, I mean, it's, they laugh it's at the funny. wrong time. People yeah, they're laugh laughing at the, at, the, time. at the words and yeah. not at the action on the stage. Well, Carol, I want to talk about the soprano role. And I also want to talk about the famous tenor aria because you and I have got some stories about that from our shared past and audition rooms. But um, I, I mentioned when I was giving my little bel canto speech at the very beginning that I consider early Verdi to be a part of this crew. And you didn't mention him when you were giving your uh, corrective to my to my uh, explanation of bel canto. So where does Verdi fit into all this? And does he, in your mind? Absolutely. Um, he His early works and late Donizetti are, so you could mix them up, actually, if you were listening properly or you didn't have a score in front of you, because there are times in Donizetti, there's some there's some choral moments in Don Pasquale that I always imagine sound like Va Pensiero, which is mm-hmm. that very famous Verdi chorus from an early opera of his, Nabucco. So the the um, the seeds of Verdi are planted in Donizetti, and one of the things that's interesting, in particular, is that Donizetti starts to use the orchestra. Wagner said it was just a guitar. Well, in Donizetti's case, he starts to use it more as a, a creative dramatic entity, figuring into the overall a drama, almost, yeah. a character exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the recitative writing is, this gets a little bit probably in the weeds, but it's very different from uh, Rossini or Bellini in that um, it takes many more harmonic shifts. And the singer often has to make the harmonic shift and then the orchestra corroborates it Mm -hmm. rather than the orchestra leading the singer. So it's kind of interesting when we work on Donizetti recitative, the singers can often find that a little baffling. And I say, well, no, because you're having to make the modulation. The orchestra is not helping you. And then the orchestra will join in and, and, and echo the modulation you've made. So the recitative is written very differently, which, again, leads into Verdi early works. So as much as... um. Donizetti stitches together the loose ends of the early bel canto and Verdi. It doesn't his influence doesn't stretch into the comedic area. It's mostly Donizetti's serious operas which kind of lead us into the early serious operas of the maestro Giuseppe Verdi. Well, and it's part of a continuum as you as you said before Carol that's not it's not so it's not so stepwise, you know, everything's moving in a certain direction because from Rossini to Bellini to Donizetti to, as you say, Verdi, someday must come Puccini. And it's mm-hmm. it's so thinking of this as a continuum is something constantly moving, I think is valuable and probably more instructive than just boxing those three guys in this one thing. Well, and we haven't even discussed, and we won't have time to in this podcast, but maybe another episode, we haven't even talked about how uh, the librettos 
the libretti and the librettists changed the way they wrote yeah. from the early sort of Italian things of Handel into all the way up into Puccini. Yeah. So, you know, if, you, if you're interested in that, comment and tell us you want to hear that podcast and we'd, we'll work on we'd it. We'd be glad to do it. So <laughs> let's dig in a little bit to Daughter and some of the cool things that happen in it. You've, you've, we've mentioned a couple times the famous Amaze Ami, the, the tenor aria with the eight high C's. Yes. And um, and then the one that's usually added at the end. The added one, exactly. With maybe so a D. With a, let's, let's call it a potential for nine high C's. And this is uncommon, certainly. High C's are not necessarily uncommon in opera, but that many in one aria, it's pretty acrobatic. It demands a lot of a tenor. And you and I, Carol, have been in audition rooms together over the years. And one of the rules when you're listening, this is to all you tenors out there, you aspiring tenors, if you put it on your sheet, we're going to ask you to do it. So it's you true. better be able to sing it. And it's not easy, is it? No, no, it's not. And what's really, it's interesting because for some tenors, Okay, so the, the approach to this high C, these eight high Cs, is it's just a little pop-up. Right. So it's dun, da, 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 da. So it's, it's jump, jump, sustain, and come down. Often a high C is the final, the penultimate note in right. an aria. It's right. where you go, ha, 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 like, and that's a high C. Like Bohem at the end of Act One. Did, yes. When you're, walking, when you're walking away with her. Isn't that a high C? Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so it, the fact that this high C is sort of interpolated in the mix of the aria as opposed to finishing out, it being the big finish, is unusual. And then the approach is very unusual. And we'll find that sometimes there are, are singers who have managed to do the acrobatics. And then when we ask for, say, something a little more lyrical, they can't manage the lyricism. So it's kind of a thing like an athlete who can do the triple, you know, twisting flip, yeah. but then can't do the um, artistic spin on the balance beam, you right. know, the gymnast who can do one thing. You know, there's just skill sets. And so it definitely either in and of itself or in contrast, we always, almost always have um, asked for a contrasting aria in the audition situation. So, so we see uh, whether they can negotiate the acrobatics of this aria, and then can they switch out and be, you know, do these other arias as well, this other, you know, something a little bit more lyrical. So it kind of shows the acrobatic capabilities and also the um, versatility. Yeah. And it really it, it's a it's a great vehicle for exposing one way or another. And it really is a case of, well, it's on your list. We have to hear it. You better do it. Is it is it kind of a queen of the night for tenors, basically? Kind of, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, obviously Queen of the Night is even more specialized Definitely. Of, a, of a voice type. Right. But very often if a queen of the night if she comes in and, and she has that on her list and she starts with something else, we'll be like, Well, we gotta hear it. You're saying you have the Fs, we wanna hear the Fs. Exactly. Well, speaking of sopranos. This is a big deal opera for sopranos, right? It's a big role. And yeah, it's, I mean, from it's the a diva maker. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, some of the great nineteenth-century divas. I looked up some of the names of people who made it their bread and butter: Adelina Patti, Jenny Lind, the mm -hmm. Swedish Nightingale. Yep. Then you want to move in um, into the Donizetti's operas. Kind of fell out of favor towards yep. the end of the nineteenth century, and then it wasn't until the nineteen fifties that they kind of came back. And then we had uh, Joan Sutherland, mm -hmm. who was uh, a famous Marie. Uh, Beverly Sills made a big splash with this. Why? Um, someone else rather famous in the tenor world made a huge splash with his Met debut on the nine and the high nine high season. That's Luciano Pavarotti. Pavarotti, of course, yeah. And then even recent sopranos who have made their splash with this: Natalie Desai, Pretty Yendi, 
Lizette Orpeza, and then of course our wonderful Madison Leonard is making her first splash with this. And yeah. I know that she's, you know, given the opportunity, she will have a chance to do many more Maries. It's a real star maker, this role. Um, speaking of casting, Carol, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about a little bit of what we call stunt casting that we're doing in this production. There's somebody involved with this that Utah audiences will know well, right? Yeah, there's a role that is an only spoken role. And often a spoken role is used as a stunt casting opportunity. It's a good opportunity to get some local celebrities involved. Exactly. Um, That happens in um, Flatermouse. In the final act of Flatermouse, there's a Frosh the Jailer, and he's usually uh, cast with some local actor or often a famous actor if you're at a bigger company with a bigger budget. Mm -hmm. uh, Or an abduction from the Seraglio when you cast your own artistic director, Christopher Macbeth. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I didn't cast him, but he (laughs) cast himself there. (laughs) That was a great casting coup. I loved it. It was. Uh, We've had a couple of times to see Christopher on stage well. Uh, he's not doing the Duchess of Crackenthorpe, so d- nobody nobody get worried about that. We have actually Utah Theater Royalty who has agreed to join us, and uh, we couldn't be more happy. Her name came up every time this this uh, when we, we've been talking over this production for a while, and of course it's one of the many things that got kind of pushed back right. because of our wonderful pandemic. But um, the the name that was always at the forefront of every discussion was. And Colmar Decker. Mm-hmm. And she is, um, she's, there's only one way to describe her, and that's Utah Theater Royalty. She is a legend. She is a legend. No question about that. Couldn't be a nicer human being, mm-hmm. too. She was in the in the production studios a few weeks ago having her costume fittings. And, um, yeah, we're just so excited to present her finally in an opera. This has been a stunt casting thing for many. I mean, the most famous example of stunt casting recently was um, in Washington National Opera, where an opening night, Duchess of Crackenthorpe was the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Right. So we Oh, I forgot that yeah, that's yeah. what she did. Yeah. But we're thrilled to have Anne with us. She's she's our RBG. It's, yes, we're we're exactly. super glad to have her on stage with us. Well, you can see Donizetti's Daughter of the Regiment this coming January. As we record, it's on January 14, 16, 18, 20, and 22. And you really should. It's the first time it's a Utah opera premiere. You can't usually say that about an opera written in 1840. You can really you? can't. Why should people go, Carol? Give them, well, give them one more reason. You know, it's um, it's one of the operas that we program specifically for um, to appeal to families to all ages, and um, it's about family. It's about a family that's created, not born. Right. Uh, so that's like you and I, Carol. Yes, exactly. Well, <laughs> you know, when when we are when those of us who travel, we do have to and live far away from our blood family. Do have yeah. to create a family, and I do consider you the podcast family Absolutely. as a very important part of that. But I digress. Um, so uh, we welcome you to come into the Janet Quinney Lawson Capitol Theater and uh, come early and listen to me talk. Yeah, there's other opportunities length. to hear you talk <laughs> about Donizetti. Yeah. Yes, and I'll talk a little bit more um, in depth about the music, about Donizetti's life, and also um, present musical examples. So that's in the Capitol Room at the theater one hour before curtain. And um, it's really we, – we know that in – Uh, Those of you who are listening that are not from Utah probably won't relate to this, but there is this weather phenomenon called the inversion. And we get very gray and gloomy this time of year. And the Christmas lights are all put away. The holiday sparkle is gone. And so we always try to present something in the January time slot that's going to banish the wintertime blues. And so a sparkling comedy like this is just going to be perfect. 
And it's the great remedy for just feeling a little bit post-holiday slump. January can be a real bummer here. I'm not going to lie. And if you want to unbummer your January, <laughs> you could do worse than Donna Setti's exactly. daughter of the regiment at Utah Opera. So once again, we'd like to thank all of you who are listening from near and far. We couldn't do this without an audience, and we appreciate you. If you would take a moment to rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to us on, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever, it really helps us to grow our audience and uh, also helps us to know what kind of content is working for you out there. So um, thanks for joining us today. Once again, I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. Thanks for listening. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. The Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. <laughs>